Good morning. Good morning, church. It's Epiphany Sunday. We have a lot of tired people here last night. Late, late night, huh? Um, but guess what, though? I have good news in the midst of staying up late for, for that last night is that today is still Christmas. This is the 12th and final day of Christmas. We actually are still celebrating Christmas, singing the carols. Christmas and Epiphany are kind of starting to merge together today as we continue into this new year. And also, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Um, We went from Advent in December, right? We went from waiting and longing for something better, for a better world, and then we were confronted on Christmas Eve with the joy of Jesus' birth, right? We talked about God in human flesh, God coming down and moving into, as Eugene Peterson says, into our neighborhood. We went from the longing and the lament of Advent, right? So like kind of a little bit of a penitential season, right? The purples and and, and it's a little darker during the Advent season. But then we get to the good feelings, the warm fuzzies and the excitement and joy of this joy to the world that Christ has come into our midst. But if you follow the church calendar or you follow the lectionary um, like our church does, Quickly, these appointed readings take a turn back to the pain and sorrow of human life. Um, Just three days after Christmas, on December 28th, every year is called the the Feast of the Holy Innocents. The Old Holy Innocents, where um, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in in, in a bit, but where, 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 where Herod killed all the young boys under the age of two. That's part of the Christmas story. Just three days after Christmas, the lectionary brings us to a darker side of Christmas that we often don't include in our joyous celebrations. Because you see, at the center of Christ's birth lies a power-hungry king who was so threatened by the possibility of God in flesh. This king was so threatened by Emmanuel, God with us, that he was willing to commit genocide to try and preserve this power. As a matter of fact, Herod simply is just repeating history over and over again. Herod is just doing what so many over the course of history have done when their power is threatened. They turn to violence so they can eliminate the threat. This is the darker side of the Christmas story. This is what we're calling today the nightmare after Christmas. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back at that lectionary reading from the 28th. And we're also going to pair that together today with the Epiphany reading, the, the appointed gospel reading for today from, um, from, from Matthew chapter 2. Because as a matter of fact, the Matthew chapter 2, today's appointed gospel reading, is actually the 12 verses before the one for the 28th war. So we're going to look at the whole chapter of Matthew today. And we're going to look at how these, these magi, this epiphany, this revelation of the gospel to these astrologers from the east has a lot to do with this whole Herod slaughtering kids in, in the Christmas story. And so let's open up this morning with a word of prayer. Holy Father, Son Jesus, and Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, we come before you this morning extra humble at your feet. As today we're talking about a darker side of Christmas. 
As today we're talking about something that we may want to brush over. But regardless, it's here smack dab in the middle of our Christmas story. And so God, I simply ask that we, you would give us hearts of patience so that way we could inwardly digest the events that surrounded your birth, the events that surrounded you coming into our world in our skin. God, we ask for new eyes, new hearts, a new ethos and a new being in which to relate to this world around us. And God, we ask that you and your spirit and Jesus direct that transformation in our hearts. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you want to open up a Bible, we are going to read uh, the entirety of uh, Matthew chapter 2 this morning in two different sections. We're going to actually look at the Magi first, and then we're going to look at how that uh, directly actually goes into the, the second half of these two gospel readings. Um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, just beginning in the first verse, if you want to read along and have a Bible open with you during this. Matthew writes, When Jesus was born... <clears throat> In Bethlehem of Judea, at the time when Herod was king, some wise and learned men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is the one they asked who has been born to be king of the Jews? We have seen his star rising in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was very disturbed, and the whole of Jerusalem was as well. He called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired from them where this Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they answered. That's what it says in the prophet. You, Bethlehem, in Judah's land, are not the least of Judah's princes. From out of you will come the ruler who will shepherd Israel, my people. So then Herod called the wise men to him in secret. He found out from them precisely when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem. Off you go, he said, and make a thorough search for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I can come and worship him too. When they heard what the king said, they set off. There was the star, the one they had seen rising in the east going ahead of them. It went and stood still over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were beside themselves with joy and excitement. They went into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him presents of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned to their own country by a different route. These 12 verses in Matthew is, um, these are the appointed gospel reading, I believe, every single year on Epiphany, which is tomorrow, or to be read on Epiphany Sunday, which would be today. This story of what we call the three kings, or the wise men, or the magi. And, but what's really funny is, I think we've talked about this before in Epiphany's past over these last you know, 10, 12 years, is that we don't know all that much about these people who came from the East to Bethlehem. I think we get a lot more of our information of who these people were from pop culture and songs that have come out sort of, you know, maybe guessing as to some of the things. But for instance, we don't know um, how many of them there were. We don't know that there were three. I, the, the three came from simply, I, I, my guess is that they brought three gifts. But think about this. 
Sometimes, like, my family of eight will go to my sister-in-law's house for Christmas, and we're not going to each bring eight gifts for them. We're going to bring one gift from eight people, right? We have no idea how many magi there are. The myth is that there's three. Maybe there were. Maybe there weren't. We don't know. More likely was there were plenty of them, and there was a large caravan, because you have to remember they were coming from the east. These people saw a star from the east. The Greek word actually for what most people uh, translate as wise men, for some reason they don't translate it as the word it actually is, which is just magi. Which magi literally just means magician, astrologer, sorcerer, or a wizard even. We have in the middle of the gospel story of Jesus' birth, astrologers and astronomers and people who you would never think to be inserted into God's birth plan. These guys from, or these people from the East over in Asia who were gazing upon the stars, probably trying to figure out, you know, what stars mean what things and, and are the gods putting these stars here for certain reasons? And all of a sudden, one day they see this star. Again, we don't know how these events happen, but I can picture them, you know, one guy sees this star and another one goes and tells this other person like, hey, I see the star. It seems to be shining brighter than the others. Was it even a star? The Bible says it was a star, but they didn't know that maybe planets could have looked like stars back then. So who knows? But somehow these things were aligned where these people thought this was a really important thing. And so they take this journey, which would have been a very long journey. And remember, they're only going to travel when? At night. Because when do you see stars? When do you see planets lit up? At night. So they're traveling at night. It probably would have been a large caravan of people. And so they had this large caravan of people so that way they could keep their safety in numbers, probably bringing with them herds and cattle. And this huge fanfare is going across from Asia all the way over into Bethlehem. And so when they get there, they ask. They ask, who is to be born king of the Jews? We, 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 for some reason, they ask this question that it must be the king of the Jews from the star. I'm not quite sure how they got that information. And, 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 and it says that King Herod heard this and was disturbed in the whole Jerusalem as well. I've always been very confused about that. Why would the whole Jerusalem be disturbed as well? I mean, if you think about it, this huge caravan of people coming from the east is probably going to make quite a buzz in a city like Jerusalem. But also, it was really interesting. This, work, this week, I actually looked up this word that said disturbed. And in Greek, it actually means that somebody agitated someone to make them disturbed. So Herod here, you already get this sense that Herod is agitating the situation. Herod is setting up and stirring trouble because this ancient, I mean, these Eastern people have come over. And so Herod doesn't know what to do. He calls up um, the other, you know, religious rulers, the chief priests, the scribes, all these people who know more about the scriptures than he does. He says, where was the uh, Messiah to be born? And he basically tells them, they, they, they tell him, well, hey, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and they quote Micah 5, 2 and 4. So then Herod says, I'm going to do some investigative work. And he gets these magi, these, these astrologers to come into his midst. And he says to them, where did you see this? And when they tell him where they're going, he sent them off to Bethlehem. He says, go and make a thorough search. And he listened to this line right here. When you find him, report to me so I can come and worship him too. (laughs) We're going to get to our second half today. And you're going to see he definitely was not worshiping them. Rather, he was playing them politically, right? He was, he was posturing. He was getting some insider info. If you've ever seen shows like House of Cards or some of those like political shows on TV, this is what Herod's doing here. He's basically trying to get on the inner circle of these other rich people. 
And so they heard it. They, they seemed to believe him, I guess, in the beginning. They went off. They saw the star. They were beside themselves with joy. They finally found it. Imagine this long journey. They finally get there. And then it says they went into the house and saw the child. We don't know how old Jesus was. Again, we, we put the, these wise men or these magi in our manger scenes, but it, it, this could have been years after Jesus was born. Simply, it says that they went into the house. They saw Mary. They fell down. They worshiped Jesus. And then we know this part. They gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this is kind of where most of our epiphany, wise men, magi stories end. But did you catch verse 12? They were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they returned to their own country by a different route. Here's where we get the plot twist. Uh, this dream for these magi must have been, it must have been very convincing to them. Because these people who came over here who were not actually Jewish people, not, not people of that faith at the time, believe this dream enough that they actually go a different route away from it. And here's what we pick up in verse 13. It says, After the Magi had gone, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and hurry off to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, Herod is going to hunt for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt. He stayed there until the death of Herod. This happened to fulfill what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. But when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, basically Herod was played at his own game. He flew into a towering rage. He dispatched people to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in all its surrounding districts from the ages two years old and under, according to the time the Magi had told him. That was when the word that came through Jeremiah, the prophet, was fulfilled. There was a voice in Ramah. This is Jeremiah 31, 15. There was a, heard a voice in Ramah crying in loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children and will not let anyone comfort her because they are no more. After the death of Herod, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream to Joseph in Egypt. He said, get up, now take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Those who wanted to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child, took his mother, and went back to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was ruling Judea instead of his father, he was afraid to go back there. And after being advised in another dream, there's a lot of God appearing in dreams here in this story. He went off to the region of Galilee, and when he got there, he settled in a town called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what the prophet had spoken, Jesus shall be called a Nazarene. So what happens after Herod realizes he's been tricked? This angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph, you got to go. Things are about to get really ugly. This nightmare after Christmas is about to get really real for real people. And he says, you need to flee and you need to take refuge somewhere else. You need to leave this country and you need to go somewhere else. And so Joseph does it. He gets up and he takes the child and he goes and does it by night. You get this sense that Joseph is doing this in, in a hurry, in haste. That, I mean, if he's going at night, he's trying to sneak out, right? Something, is, something is, is dangerous. Something dangerous is about to happen. And because he's warned, he's able to take off and, and flee. This would have been about a 430-mile journey on foot, which is not 
an easy journey to make. 430 miles is a long time. My guess is I've never actually heard this before. Maybe I, you know, stumbled upon it once, but my guess is that they took those three gifts, the magic I gave them, and along the way had to use them to barter and sell for things for this refugee journey. I have no proof of that. We don't know any of this. But it says that they stayed in Egypt then until Herod was, was finally dead. But then Herod, when he realized he was tricked, this is why they fled. This is where it gets ugly. This is where we have to actually face reality that in the midst of our Christmas story is a really ugly nightmare. Because Herod, the same Herod who killed one of his wives when he was threatened by her power. This same Herod killed two of his own sons when he was threatened by of his power. Get this, was willing to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding districts under the age of two. Then that Herod finally dies. And an angel of the Lord tells them, okay, you guys are safe, go back. But then what happens is that Herod's son, Archelaus, this is the same Herod, by the way, who's going to be a large, huge figure later in the Gospels. This is going to be the same Herod that Jesus goes to before he's crucified, uh, before he goes to Pilate. Same guy. And it says in a dream, again, now go somewhere else, go to Nazareth. This is kind of a hard story for us to read, isn't it? Um, Especially in the midst of a, like we've talked about, a joyous season. I mean, because we have to ask ourselves this question, what makes people go to these links? What would make someone go to the length to just destroy an entire population of innocent children in a small village? The only answer I can really come up with for you this morning, especially through the reading of these Gospels this week, is it was power and influence. Herod was supremely, supremely self-obsessed and wanted him and his kingdom and his empire to go on forever, that he was willing to do anything and everything in order to hold on to that power. And as this often happens with power dynamics, it's usually the innocent people that end up being hurt or even killed. Um, Personally, I can't even contemplate the horror of losing a child. Um, I, I could not even contemplate the horror of what it must have been like to be a parent that was, that, that, that was back there in that day uh, when this was happening. I, I also can't even imagine what it would have been like to be a parent of one of the students at Sandy Hook or, or at Parkland or, or at any other place where kids are, 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 are brutally massacred. Maybe you've had the loss of a child. This is not a light thing. Like we've said before, you can have a therapist in Jesus too. This is, this is heavy stuff that we might need to work out in other circles besides just a monologue type of sermon. But what I want to read to you is a poem that was written by Joan uh, Brocklesby. And this poem uh, was written from the point of view of a mom who lost her child in Bethlehem that day. I think it gives us a good sense of maybe what it might have been like and some of the feelings that she had surrounding this. She writes, How long we waited for a son my husband and I. Four times my seed miscarried, half formed the babe was cast away, but to my anguished prayers at last the Lord bowed his head, and beautiful as gold my baby laid curled within my arms. 
curving his tiny fingers around my thumb, laughing, crying. His little baby breath was mine and mine was his. Deep the delight, the quiet joy of his tiny mouth, seeking my breast fulfillment for us both as he fed there. And at that moment, I knew peace. I was so blind and deaf with happiness, I did not hear of the decree. I knew nothing until they came and dragged my baby boy from my arms, raising the sword there in our home, beside the fire where late I suckled him. They slaughtered him. His little body, his radiant young blood outpoured in death. The long gray years slipped by like ghosts. Never again would my womb bear child nor wake my heart to life or love again. And now I stand upon this hill, this place called Golgotha, the skull, to tell you why I hated you so much, Jesus. For it was you he sought. That butcher, that terrorist Herod, because of you, my baby was killed. All through the years I hated you, Jesus. I hated you until now, When I heard them shouting, crucify him, crucify him, my heart sang loud with joy, at last my baby was going to be avenged. I cried and took a stone to throw it at you. But then you fell, low beneath the burden of your cross. And suddenly I saw your face and looked into your eyes. My same suffering was there, engulfed in understanding, lost in pain beyond the compassion of a human heart. You bore the burden of all others' grief. And as you went, I knew in my heart you were meant to die also for me. It was as if my child were suddenly within my arms again, seeking the comfort of my breast. The empty years were fled away. I thought I heard his infant laugh again, who died for you. But now, as you two walked the way of death, we shared the cross you carried, part of a mighty pattern, you, my baby, and me. And so now I kneel, a woman brought to life from death, as you passed by to Calvary. You see, this is what death does, especially if it's taken too early, and especially if death is taken at the hands of evil simply because someone wants to control and have power. It can cause a rage of injustice, and rightly so. Think of Jesus in the temple. That's called righteous anger for the things of the world that are just not right. But sometimes it can also be directed towards the wrong thing, like this woman does here. You see, this woman who lost her baby in Bethlehem was ready for revenge. This woman was ready to take that stone in her hand and throw it after Jesus because she thought Jesus was the reason why her baby died. But suddenly she sees Jesus' eyes. She sees the reason why Jesus went to the cross and she drops the stone. She realizes that this mother... I mean, this mother rather realizes that Jesus' own cruel death at the hands of evil, that Jesus' own death at the hands of the state all those years later were the same type of death that her baby had had earlier. Because at the center of the gospel story we tell each and every week is that Jesus and the things that Jesus stand for are a threat to those in power. That is why Jesus is ultimately killed by the state. But 
Just like he is for this woman who lost her baby on that morning, he's a source of comfort for those who are oppressed by those in power. Jesus is, always has been, and always will be at the margins of society. Jesus is, always has been, and always will be at the margins of society. Jesus will always choose to be in the margins of society over the places of influence and power. Because think about it. If Jesus was to flip the power script as he teaches in the Beatitude, if Jesus was to usher in this new and better possible world in which to live, if Jesus was to fulfill scripture in subverting the power dynamics of oppression and hatred and violence, why would Jesus be born into comfortability? Why start there? Why start with Jesus having a comfortable life and then eventually having to go and deal with this? It's as if through Jesus' entire birth story, all the stories we've read this entire season, including today, that God is setting the stage for what's to come later in Jesus' life. Think about it. Jesus, born into obscurity, in less than sanitary conditions. Jesus, as a baby, an infant, very vulnerable, put in a manger, a feeding trough, taken care of by earthly parents. Jesus, who was homeless for the majority of his ministry, a refugee as a child. Jesus is slipping in already as a baby and a little child, identifying with us in our humanness. And Jesus is identifying with the journey that pains and hurts so many people on the fringes of society. Especially those who are hurt by the power dynamics that be. I want to leave you with this one thought this morning. Um, this quote I came across and actually posted yesterday uh, from Jane Ven- Jean Veneer and Stanley Harwise. They write this in their book, Living Gently in a Violent World. It says, Jesus entered into this world to love people as they are. The heart of the vision of Jesus is to bring people together, to meet to engage in dialogue, and to love each other. Jesus wants to break down the walls that separate peoples and groups. How is he going to do this? He will do this by saying to each person, you are important and you are precious. You see, the King Herods of this world are not willing to do that. The King Herods of this world are not willing to break down the walls that separate people and say to each person, you're important and you're precious. Because if the Herods of this world do that, if the Herods of this world actually tear down walls and start actually calling people God and made in God's image, people as image bearers of God, the earthly cost of them and their power is too great. And so they won't do it. But King Jesus... And those who follow him are the ones willing to forego the violence. Jesus and his followers are the ones who are willing to forego the hatred. They're the ones willing to forego the power-hungry egos that divide, conquer, and kill because they know the eternal cost of not doing so is too great. This is the gospel, my friends, that Jesus Christ 
came for you. That Jesus Christ came for me. That Jesus Christ was born into the world for people who pain and suffer. That Jesus Christ came into the world, especially as we read in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, for those who are oppressed and the least of those in society. All you have to do is read through the Gospels. All you have to do is read through the Bible, the entirety of Scripture to get this point that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect community with each other, came and sent Jesus in order to create a new humanity, a new community where we have that same fellowship as Father, Son, and Spirit together with each other. Jesus did not come to divide, build walls, and conquer. That's what the Herods of this world do. That's what we do. Jesus came to break down the walls. Jesus came to bring peoples and people groups back together again. That's what Jesus came to do. I know that this is getting just a tad bit long. I'm going to go off script for a second, but I just thought of this. Um, I'm going to actually end this morning um, with another quote that we used uh, this morning in our Bible study, because I think this is really going to come in uh, huge to kind of conclude and end this uh, time together this morning. Uh, This is N.T. Wright when talking about our Ephesians 3, 1 to 13 text. Um, where he says the heart of the present passage and the passage we're talking about is this, where Paul writes, this is it, that God's wisdom in all its rich variety was to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. And so N.T. Wright says, this verse 10 is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements of the reason for why the church exists that the rulers and authorities in our age must be confronted with God's wisdom in all its rich variety. And this, Paul says, is to happen through the church. Not, we should quickly add, through what the church says, though that is vital as well, but rather through what the church is, namely a community in which men, women, and children of every race, every color, social and cultural background come together in glad worship of the one true God. It is precisely this many-sided, many-colored, many-splendored identity of the church that makes the point. God's wisdom, Paul is saying, is like that too. It's like a many-faceted diamond which twinkles and sparkles with all the colors in the rainbow. The rulers and authorities, however, both the early authorities and their shadowy heavenly counterparts, always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse, they then marginalize or kill people or groups who don't fit into their narrow brand of acceptability. The church is to be, by the very fact of its existence, a warning to them that their time is up and an announcement to the world that there is a different way to be human. You see, the way that Herod is and the Herods of the world, that's, that's boring, That's been done a thousand times before. Let's be people that actually live a different way and let's show the world how to be different humans. We can do this. The Herods of the world can do what they want to do, but we don't take part in that. Because we follow King Jesus. We follow King Jesus who says, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. What would it look like 
for our communities if we took these words seriously and thought about different ways, creative ways, to be human. So we're going to land this morning with a simple question. What would it look like for us to use our imagination and creativity in breaking down walls, building longer tables, and living Jesus' ethos in our world? Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we come before you with not really much to say. For passages like this show us the true ugliness of our humanness. But God, hidden in there is the mystery of your gospel. The gospel that you did come into this world to save us. To save us sinners. To save the Herods of the world. To save those who are oppressed. To save everyone and all in between. God, may we grasp your vision for humanity. May we leave this place today not only disturbed at what we read this morning, but on top of being disturbed at what we read, also remembering the Christmas joy that you identify with us in all of this. That we do not have a high priest who is not able to identify in our weakness, for you were tempted by all things. Just didn't fall into sin. And so Jesus, for what you've done for us, for your birth as we're closing out this season, as you reveal your gospel to us over the season of Epiphany and then into Lent and into Easter, God, we thank you for your incarnation, for your life, for your death, for your resurrection and your ascension. For you alone, Jesus, are the hope in which we cling. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.